coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, part three of our series on climate change. We need to essentially increase food production by about 70% over the next 40 years in order to keep up with demand. In this episode, we examine how changes to our environment will not only affect what we can grow, but will make the food we're already growing less nutritious. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. It's Thursday, March 2nd, 2017. I'm Noah Levitt. Amy Monomura is off this week. This is part three of our series on climate change and health. In parts one and two, Ari Bernstein gave us a broad overview of links between environmental changes and our health, and also shared strategies for communicating more effectively about climate change. If you're listening to this on our website, you'll find links to both episodes. In the next two episodes, we'll be taking deeper dives into two specific areas, food and mental health. A recent day-long conference in Atlanta explored the wide-ranging health effects of climate change. The climate and health meeting was organized by a coalition including the Harvard Global Health Institute, former Vice President Al Gore, and the American Public Health Association. It came together after the Centers for Disease Control canceled a previously scheduled three-day conference shortly before the inauguration of President Donald Trump. In a few minutes, you'll hear a presentation from Sam Myers, senior research scientist in the Department of Environmental Health here at the Harvard Chan School. But first, to set the stage, we wanted to share some remarks from Ashish Jha. He's director of the Harvard Global Health Institute and KT Lee professor of health policy at the Harvard Chan School. Jha explained why we can't wait to take action to address climate change. A hundred years ago, a child born on this planet had a one in three chance of dying before the age of five. That number has been cut by 90%. That is remarkable progress. And much of that gain has come from better nutrition, more plentiful food, better crops. But here's the problem. As the world warms and as hot places get hotter and dry places get drier, we will see more droughts, we will see more famines the nutritional content of food will change. And the children and families who are thriving now will face hunger, they will face malnutrition, they will face diseases, and they will face death. And as the weather becomes more extreme, the pollution that is all around us, it's gonna become deadlier. We will see more cases of asthma and heart disease and stroke. And as the climate changes, so will the infectious diseases that we confront. More outbreaks like Ebola and Zika, more pandemics like the bird flu. And here's the catch. Walls will not keep these pathogens out. No borders are gonna protect us. That's what awaits us unless we act. We must commit to funding and supporting research on climate change and its impact on health. And I believe that's how we become smarter about protecting the American people. And that's how we begin to share knowledge to protect people around the globe. Universities create and share knowledge, right? That's what we do. And through that knowledge, we educate not just our students, but the broader public. And here, I think we as universities need to do a much, much better job helping our citizens and our policymakers understand what's at stake and what must be done. 
health is the human face of climate change. That's what Michelle Williams, the dean of our School of Public Health, likes to say. And she's right. This is not just about temperature rises and sea level changes, though those are important. It's about fighting hunger and starvation. It's about preventing that child's asthma attack. It's about stopping, this, and, and stopping the spread of diseases. Ultimately, it's about creating a world where children don't just make it to the age of five. They grow up to be adults who are thriving and healthy and productive. That's the world we want. And universities like mine and others recognize that's the threat we face. That's the world we need to have that is threatened by climate change. And we want and we need to be part of the solution. To meet the public health challenge that is climate change, to produce unbiased, data-driven research and making it both accessible and actionable, to training the next generation so they understand the science of climate change and its impact on health, and to educating the American public and American policymakers, really global policymakers, so they too understand the effects of climate change and the cost of inaction. That was Ashish Jha on the urgent need to take action to address climate change and mitigate its health effects. Now we'll be sharing a presentation from Sam Myers of the Harvard Chan School. Myers has extensively researched how environmental changes will affect the global food supply. And over the next 10 minutes, he'll outline how climate change will not just affect the types of food we can grow and where we grow it, but how that food will actually become less nutritious over time. Take a listen. We find ourselves at a really, really interesting moment when global demand for food is rising more steeply than ever before in human history. At the very same time that our own activities are fundamentally transforming the biological and physical conditions that underpin just about every aspect of our global food production system. Failures of nutrition drive more disability and death around the world than any other risk factor. And climate change is threatening the quantities of food we can produce, its quality, and even the locations where our food is produced. Early studies from the 1990s suggested that there might be a silver lining, that increasing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere might have a fertilizing effect and increase crop yields. Subsequent studies have shown that that fertilization effect is actually smaller than initially thought. And studies that combine CO2 fertilization with anticipated changes in temperature and precipitation over the next century indicate that we can expect to see 15 to 25 percent reductions in the yields of several staple food crops, particularly in the tropics. We also anticipate complex changes in the biology of agricultural plants and the pests and pathogens that attack them, as well as the pollinators on which many of them depend. As temperatures rise, parts of the world will become simply incompatible with prolonged physical labor. And many farmers in those regions will lack the resources to replace their labor with mechanization. Fisheries assessments around the world have suggested that wild harvested fish, fish catch peaked over a decade ago and has been falling by about 1% per year. 
and ocean warming will reduce total fish biomass while at the same time pushing the remaining fish stocks up towards the poles and away from the tropics. The impacts on livestock and animal husbandry are not very well understood, but increasing heat exposure in the context of growing water scarcity in some regions is a concern. So over, overall, we're faced with this uncomfortable requirement that we need to essentially increase food production by about 70% over the next 40 years in order to keep up with demand. At the same time that climate change is threatening to reduce yields and to push our food production toward the poles and away from the regions where we expect to see most of the world's population growth. In that context, we become increasingly dependent on international trade. And the proposition of, or the prospect of food price lability leaves the poor, including the poor here in the United States, especially vulnerable to food shortages. And then there are surprises. It's not possible to fundamentally change all the biophysical conditions within which we live without encountering surprises. And I want to tell you about one such surprise from our own research. So following on a few small studies done in greenhouses and chambers that indicated that agricultural crops grown at elevated carbon dioxide levels had significantly reduced nutritional value, we decided to investigate that more comprehensively using the free air carbon dioxide enrichment or FACE methods, which is now the gold standard for doing this kind of research. And by growing crops in these open field conditions that you can see, inside a ring of carbon dioxide emitting jets. It's possible to expose identical cultivars of the same food crops to the exact same field conditions, except that the plants inside the ring are experiencing elevated carbon dioxide. In our experiments, that level was about 550 parts per million, which is essentially where we expect the world to be in about 50 years. In that way, you can isolate the effect of carbon dioxide on these plants, but otherwise have them growing in natural conditions. In our experiments, we grew 41 cultivars of six important staple food crops on seven locations across three different continents over 10 years. And by analyzing that large data set, we were able to show that, yes, indeed, rising concentrations of carbon dioxide are threatening global human nutrition. Overall, what we found is that all C3 crops, which is essentially most of what we all eat, show significant reductions in iron and zinc. The C3 grains, like rice and wheat, also showed significant reductions in protein, while C4 crops were less affected. The reason this matters is that iron and zinc deficiency are huge public health problems today, uh, affecting about 2 billion people at a cost of around 63 million life years lost annually. Then to try to understand what these changes in crop nutrients actually meant for risk of micronutrient deficiency in people, we went ahead and modeled the dietary intake for the populations of 152 countries around the world. And we found that there are around 2.75 billion people who get at least 70% of their dietary zinc and or iron from the kinds of C3 crops that are losing zinc and iron. Our modeling studies suggested that the carbon dioxide effect alone could push up to 200 billion, I'm sorry, 200 million people into new onset 
zinc deficiency, in addition to exacerbating the existing deficiency in around a billion people. And we've now completed and are about to publish similar studies looking at effects on iron and, uh, and protein. And we found similar effects. And again, we found our most vulnerable populations to be in Africa and South Asia. I think that I would argue that these findings are important on their own, but I also think that they illustrate a dimension of the conversation that we're having today uh, that I'd like to emphasize about the impacts of climate change on health. If we'd sat down 10 years ago and tried to think what the effects of anthropogenic carbon dioxide emissions might be on human health, none of us would have anticipated that one effect would be to make our food less nutritious. But we can't fundamentally disrupt and reconfigure most of the natural systems around our planet without encountering unintended consequences. And I would argue that these complex, uncertain, difficult to anticipate effects of climate change on health may be just as important as the effects that we're starting to understand. That was Sam Myers at the recent climate and health meeting in Atlanta. Coming up next week, you'll hear from Lise Van Susteren, an advisory board member of the school's Center for Health and the Global Environment. She'll be talking about the effects of climate change on mental health. And if you'd like to watch the full conference, we'll have a link on our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. You can also find links to the first two episodes of our series on climate change. And that's all for this week's episode. I'm Noah Levitt, a reminder that you can always find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher.